0: The Peter Schiff Show. Last night, President Trump delivered what purported to be a State of the Union address, but really Donald Trump talked about a lot of things, but he didn't really speak at all about the State of the Union. You know, Bernie Sanders, who recorded his own. Uh, response. He didn't do the official uh, Democratic response that was done by Stacey Abrams. She was the woman who ran and lost governorship of uh, Georgia in 2018. She was a Democratic candidate. I think the Democrats are grooming her probably to run for Senate in 2020. So they wanted to put her up on that stage and, you know, shine the spotlight on her. But Bernie Sanders Delivered his own response on YouTube. And Bernie Sanders did a much better job of describing the problems in the U.S. economy that Donald Trump ignored uh, when he gave his State of the Union address. I mean, he spoke a little bit about the economy. He said we were having an economic miracle here in the United States, that we were the envy of the world, that we were the hottest economy in the world, that everything was great, and theoretically the only thing that could screw it up is if the Democrats keep going after him uh, with this ridiculous investigation, but everything is doing great, which of course is a bunch of nonsense. Bernie Sanders, did a much better job of presenting the facts. I and mean, he pointed out that maybe if Donald Trump is talking about his rich friends at Mar-a-Lago Country Club, for those guys, the economy is great. But for average Americans, the economy is lousy. And he you know, described some of the problems that Donald Trump overlooked or ignored when he gave his uh, address. And this is going to be the problem for the Republicans In 2020, when they run for re-election, talking about how great the economy is, they don't have a chance. It's the Democrats that are going to be feeling the pain of the voters and coming up with their own solution. The problem is the solutions that Bernie Sanders are putting forth, socialism, aren't going to work. The reason that all the problems that Bernie Sanders points out exists is because of big government. It's because we have too much government and not enough freedom. But Sanders wants to blame it on too much freedom rather than uh, too much government. And his solution is, well, we need even less freedom and we need more government to solve the problems. But when Donald Trump pretends that everything is great, well, then the only person who's promising to solve the problems is going to be the Democrats. That's what got Trump elected in the first place because he told the truth about how rotten the economy was, and he was the guy that was going to fix it. Meanwhile, the Democrats had to pretend everything was great because we just had eight years of Obama. Well, there's no way Trump or any other Republican is going to run in 2020 on a platform of four more years that the economy is great because you could say the economy is great all you want, but the voters aren't going to feel that greatness. This whole thing is an illusion uh, when it comes to the economy. I mean, Trump is trying to perpetuate the same false narrative that he pierced as a candidate in 2016, which is why he won. But, you know, getting back to the State of the Union address uh, that was delivered, I mean, probably What's even more important than what Trump said was what Trump did not say. And in fact, if you just listen to the State of the Union address, I mean, this could have been delivered by Barack Obama. I mean, this was not a conservative guy who's uh, trying to shrink government and get government off our backs and cut regulations and balance budgets and pay down debt or anything like that. In fact, there wasn't a single mention In the entire speech, right, which ran well over an hour, not once did the president mention the national debt, not once, $22 trillion of debt. Not once did he mention the surging annual budget deficits and the increase in government spending. None of that was mentioned at all. Uh, Trump didn't talk about the growing entitlement problem. The problem with unfunded liabilities in Social Security and Medicare. These are the real issues that are confronting the economy, and they didn't even get mentioned. Trump didn't mention any government agencies that he wanted to eliminate, any spending that he wanted to cut. The only stuff Trump talked about when it came to government was spending more money. He talked about spending more money on the military. We're going to spend more money than anybody else on the military. Where are we going to get the money when we're broke and the debt is piling up? He even introduced the potential for a new American entitlement, brand new entitlement. I mean, we're already broke from the entitlements that we already have. And now the president wants to come up with another one. And first of all, you know, this whole word entitlement. You know, I don't even like the word. I mean, it got started with Social Security because people felt entitled to Social Security as opposed to welfare, which was originally called relief. Right. Nobody felt entitled to that. In fact, when they first introduced it during the Depression, a lot of people didn't even want to accept it. I mean, they were embarrassed uh, to accept it because they thought it was wrong to take the money. Right? But Social Security was different because people were conned into believing that they were paying into a social insurance program like, it, like any other kind of insurance policy. So because people were paying premiums and they were getting benefits, people thought they were entitled to the benefits because it was a return of their own uh, premiums that they paid. Of course, all that was nonsense, but that's where the concept of entitlement was born. But of course, over the years, people feel entitled to things that they didn't earn. Right? Your typical American today thinks he's entitled to a bunch of stuff simply because he was born. You're not. You're born with the inalienable rights to be left alone. That's it. You don't. When you come into this world, nobody owes you anything other than to leave you alone. That is the promise of America. And the American dream is that you're free to pursue your own happiness to the best of your ability without other people interfering with you. But that doesn't mean other people are obligated to give you a bunch of stuff But now that's what entitlement means. And Donald Trump is now talking about a brand new entitlement that he wants to launch when we're broke. And that is the entitlement for nationwide paid family leave paid by the U.S. taxpayer. Meaning that I guess Trump is going to introduce some kind of legislation or help or encourage Congress to introduce it. And the Democrats, of course, would love it where the U.S. government is going to pay for people to take leave from their work. Now, who knows how involved this is going to be? I mean, how much leave do you get? One week, two weeks, a month? I don't know. How much pay, full pay, half pay? What reasons do you need to give for the leave? I mean, is it just going to be pregnancy? But can it be taking care of a sick parent? Can it be taking care of a sick child? I mean, who knows how broad it's going to be. But if you create a situation Where people can just claim that they have some type of family emergency and they need paid leave, they need to take a month or two months off of work with pay, everybody is going to line up to get that money. And so not only is the moral hazard going to make the cost of the program much bigger than what people think just based on looking at how people act absent uh, that moral hazard, but it's also gonna create a lot of problems for American employers if a lot of their workers just start taking time off with pay. Because even if the employer doesn't have to pay those people, the the the, the labor's gone. I mean, maybe they're doing important jobs that need to be done, and how do you find somebody to replace that worker? Especially if they need to be trained, because I'm sure there'll be some kind of requirement that if a worker leaves for a month to take advantage of this paid leave, you can't fire them. You got to have the job waiting for them when they get back. So what does the employer do? How do you hire somebody just for a month? Hey, will you take this job, but I'm going to have to fire you in a month when this guy gets back. And, you know, how are you going to be able to train them in that short period of time? So that type of entitlement is just going to be another big disaster for the American economy. And, you know, the crazy part about it, as Trump is talking about all the ways he wants to make government bigger, Right. He also talked about the idea that people with pre-existing conditions need to be able to buy insurance at the same price as healthy people. That, of course, requires uh, a form of socialized medicine because basically what the government is doing is telling healthy people, don't buy insurance. You're an idiot if you buy insurance. Just wait until you get sick. And if you get sick, then we got you covered. So insurance is a waste. So the only way you can have a, a situation like that is if government takes over health care and and, you know, makes it some kind of a single payer program. That's basically what Trump is advocating without coming right out and saying it. Uh, so Utah, he's talking about that. All the things he wants to do. Infrastructure. He mentioned government spending more money on on infrastructure Uh Program. So at the same time, he's talking about making government bigger, making government more intrusive. Right. He then mentioned socialism because obviously socialism is becoming more popular on the left. And he says socialism will never come to America. Well, great. Well, it's already coming to America. It's already here. Right. Socialism is just going to get bigger and bigger. But when you are leading the march. Down the road to socialism, which is what Donald Trump is doing in his State of the Union address by championing bigger government, more government. He, you know, he is advocating socialist stuff at the same time that he's saying that we're not going to have socialism, and of course, by pretending that a lousy economy is great, by pretending that he solved all the problems that he was elected to solve, but hasn't, he is simply making it that much easier for the socialists to win control of Congress and the White House in 2020. And in fact, I said this um, when the Democrats won the the House of Representatives. What I said right away was that Trump was going to work with the Democrats on passing big increases in government spending. He was going to find common ground with the Democratic Congress, with the House, and get some, you know, moderate Republicans, liberal Republicans, uh, to join with the Democrats to pass all sorts of new government spending programs, new entitlements. In fact, maybe the Democrats to get a laundry list of stuff will throw the president a bone and give him a few million dollars for his wall, right? At the cost of hundreds of billions of more government spending on all these socialist programs that the president says that he is objecting to. And in fact, I think that the deficits are going to skyrocket this year. We're going to pass some huge increases in government spending, maybe not any tax cuts. We might get a tax cut bill next year as part of a stimulus when we're in recession. And then maybe there'll be some kind of tax cut for the poor and the middle class that may even be accompanied with a tax hike for the millionaires and the billionaires who did so well in the past, but you know we now have to make them pay because the prosperity didn't trickle down and now we have this big recession. And so Trump is gonna be cooperating with the Democrats, maybe to think that, oh, that's going to help him get reelected because he worked with the Democrats. He reached the party lines. Of course, that's not going to help him. The Democrats are not going to give him any credit for that uh, when uh, the election goes. I mean, they're going to blame him for all the problems, even if he joined with them in implementing some of their solutions because they'll be able to say it was too little too late we would have had even better uh, solutions if we if we had a better president and of course it's the president's policies of tax cuts for the rich and deregulation that put us back in the ditch that Obama got us out of so it there's no way this is going to end well for the Republicans and of course that means there's no way it's going to end well for the country and of course uh, the President was also pandering as best he could uh, to women, you know, honoring women, celebrating women. You know we have uh, more women now in in Congress than uh, we've ever had. I think it's about the 100 year anniversary now of women's suffrage, the amendment that allowed uh, women to vote, I think was passed in uh, 1920, but I think it was initially proposed in 1919. Uh, so here we are, hundred years later. We now have 102 women in Congress, right? And they're all wearing white, right, to commemorate, uh, you know, women's suffrage. But 102 Congress women, only 13 are Republican. So basically, 13% of the women in Congress are Republicans. And the president is talking about, you know, how great it's been for America, what a great contribution women have made uh, in American politics. Now, you know, I believe that women have. Uh, contributed quite a bit to our society. There are many of uh, you know, things that you can point to where women have made uh, you know, a very good contribution, certainly to, to the United States and America. But the one area where they haven't made a good contribution is politics right and of course if you are a socialist if you believe in big government right well then women have been great for america right but if you don't if you believe in individual liberty in freedom in the constitution in in republican government if you believe in all this stuff then women have been an absolute disaster for american politics i mean this is just a fact right i mean the initial drive right to get women to vote because initially women weren't allowed to vote Right. Why? I mentioned this before in my podcast because the framers of the Constitution were not interested in democracy. They didn't like democracy. They wanted good government. That was their goal. And they believed that the only way to get good government was to limit who could vote. That's why they had all kinds of restrictions on on who could vote. And at the time, since most women didn't really have much real-world experience, I mean, there were some, but in general, most women uh, never really worked outside the home. Uh, They went from their father's home, their parents' home to their husband's home. Uh, you know, they didn't have as much formal education or any formal education at the time. Uh, so women were not as involved and they they, they weren't – they didn't know enough about the issues. And the idea was, look, why should they vote, right? Because if they're going to vote, I mean, they might just, you know, vote for a guy because he's better looking than the other guy. Instead, so they wanted – Uh, you know, more responsible voters because they wanted better government. That was the goal. Nobody, Nobody cared about democracy. Sure, it's not democratic, but that wasn't the goal. Right, the goal was good government. How do you get good government if we're going to have some elections? Well, let's make sure the people who are voting are the most informed voters who really understand the issues and are not going to make irresponsible votes. And so, uh, women were not voting at the time. Now, clearly, if you were writing a constitution today and looking at the differences between men and women, you don't really see that big a difference because women are as likely now to work as men almost, and so they're as likely to go to college or you know. And so there wouldn't be the reason to make the distinction. Today, like it was back then. But we had a wave of populism that kind of swept over the country around the end of the the 19th century, right? And as a result of that, we made a lot of changes to the United States, uh, you know, constitution to make the government more democratic, right? We basically chipped away at many of the protections that the founders had written into the Constitution. Because really the only uh, people who were elected or the only representatives elected directly by people was the House of Representatives. They were elected by the people, senators, they were appointed by state legislatures, and the president and vice president were elected by the electors at the Electoral College. So the only direct voting was for the members of the House, and of course the House was led by the Speaker of the House, who was then elected by the representatives, right? So the people didn't vote directly for the Speaker of the House, who was the third uh, highest uh, person, you know, third in line for the White House. But the Speaker was not elected by the people. The Speaker was elected by the people's representatives. So it's a representative uh, democracy. And, you know, the reason the senators had six-year terms and they were staggered was in case there was some, you know, popular, uh, um, you know, I don't know, some – something that became popular and swept over the nation that it would not be able to capture any more than a third of the Senate and the senators could, you know, could resist whatever kind of populist movement uh, came into the House of Representatives and hopefully uh, it would blow over because they, they they didn't want things to change. I mean, the Constitution was set up um, initially and We had all this freedom and limited government. And so chances were, if there was any changes, it would be a change for the worse. So the idea was to preserve the status quo and to have a check against democracy. But as we had this populist wave of, oh, we need to be democratic and, you know, even you know, in, when around World War One I, I mean, Woodrow Wilson was saying, hey, we have to make the world safe for democracy. That's really the first time that we started talking about democracy, right, as opposed to Republican government, which is what we have. And of course, if you don't believe me, go you know, check the Constitution. It says the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government. Recite the pledge, pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. It's not a democracy. We weren't supposed to be a democracy, but we moved further in that direction with this populist movement. And between 1913 and 1920, Four amendments to the Constitution were passed, starting with the income tax ratified in 1913, It was proposed in 1909. That was part of the populist movement because the income tax was taxed the rich. Right. We're going to get rid of the tariffs that the middle class pay and we're going to soak the rich with the income tax. Also, the popular election of senators, we changed that. So instead of the senators being appointed by the state legislature, they were going to be elected by the people, just like the House of Representatives, all part of that populist uh, movement that swept the nation. And, of course, women's suffrage got put in that. And women, you know, that they got the vote in 1920, was proposed in 1919. But also in 1919, we passed prohibition. And, you know, the reason for prohibition was women voting, even though, you know, prohibition came in slightly before women's suffrage, the politicians of the day knew that women's suffrage was coming. It was a big movement. You know, the women's temperance movement was, was leading the charge for prohibition. And a lot of the politicians of the day knew that women would soon have the vote. And since uh, prohibition was so popular among women, right, that politicians didn't want to Anger women. They wanted to get the support of women, and so as a result, they were in favor of prohibition, which was a complete disaster. But I don't think the prohibition ever would have been passed had women's suffrage not been on deck. I mean, if all these politicians had not tried to curry favor with women's groups and try to show their support for women by supporting, uh, you know, prohibition then we never would have had that. So from the very beginning, right, the first entrance of women in politics really gave us prohibition, which was a complete disaster. And they ultimately uh, had to repeal the amendment because it was such a complete failure. Uh, But ever since then, I mean, women have in general been voting for more government, for bigger government. I mean, look at the gender gap in politics today. I mean, women uh, by and large are voting Democrat. Now, does that mean all women? Of course not. We're just talking about averages in total. Right. So America today is worse off because women have the vote. It's not better. I mean, if you want to say, OK, yes, it's, it's good. Now, today, everybody is equal that women and men are treated equally. Fine. I think they should be treated equally, but I don't think everybody should be voting. I think we should have other criteria to limit the suffrage other than sex. And I think there are probably ways that you could limit the suffrage so that it doesn't skew so much to people voting for socialism and big government. Because I don't believe in democracy. Certainly if democracy leads to socialism, why the hell should I believe in it, right? I mean, you know, look, I mean, I'm Jewish, right? The Jews, uh, you know, they've been terrible in this country when it comes to politics. I mean, we've made a lot of contributions in other areas, uh, you know, of the country. And I'm so, but when it comes to politics, if you look at the way Jewish people vote, they overwhelmingly vote democrat not is every jew a democrat no i mean i'm jewish and i'm not you know and there are some that are not but the vast majority are and and so as a result of the jewish vote america is worse off right than than without it but the key is not to have everybody voting if they're going to vote in socialism see people who believe in democracy according to that theory if the majority wants socialism then you have to support it I don't give a damn what the majority wants. If the majority wants to do something wrong, why should I be in favor of just because the majority wants to do it? Right. It's wrong. Right. The definition of a democracy, probably one of the best ones I've ever heard is, is, is um two foxes and a chicken voting on what to have for dinner. Right. I mean, so obviously I know how the vote's going to go. That doesn't mean it's right. Right. The, the definition of a Republic is a well-armed chicken challenging the vote. So if, you believe in good government, constitutional government, limited government, then you don't believe in democracy. If you just believe in democracy, then you don't believe in any of that. Because if the if the majority, if 51% of the people, you know, want to take away the wealth of the other 49, well, hey, you got to be in favor of it. So Trump out there talking about how great it is for America that we have all these women voting, we have all these women congressmen, they're all Democrats. What's great about that? In fact, if we end up with a socialist government, in 2020, it's gonna be because of the women's vote. I mean, that's what's gonna tip the balance. It's gonna be women that are going to take us into socialism. And probably one of the reasons for that, I think, is they tend to be, I think, in general, you know, more you know, compassionate or more motherly or more nurturing. And, and so I think the message of the state taking care of everybody making sure nobody is hungry, making sure nobody is uneducated, make sure nobody goes without medical care. I think that mothering, nurturing nature means that women are probably more likely to fall for that nonsense than men in general, obviously not all women, but in general there's that difference because otherwise, how else do you explain the gender gap? Why do you have this going on? I just think that that's part of what makes women women uh, and what makes them different from men probably makes them, on average, more likely to gravitate to these uh, socialist-type candidates. And certainly the younger they are, the more likely they are to gravitate to it. And that's true with males too. I mean, males are more likely to fall for this nonsense when they're 18, 19, 20 than when they're 30 or 35, which is you know, why I've supported uh, a much higher voting age, give people a chance to grow and mature and learn and get some experience so they grow out of all this, you know, these idealistic you know, theories that they have when they're young and they believe all this stuff. Uh, But I think, you know, women are probably more likely uh, to hold on to some of these emotional beliefs than our men, uh, you know, as they get older. So in general, this has not been a positive force in American politics. It's 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 been terrible. You know, women have helped lead the way towards big government and towards a loss of individual liberty and individual freedom. Not every woman, clearly, but on balance, you know, that's what they've done. Now, of course, I don't want to let the men off the hook. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe a lot of these wars that we had wouldn't have been started, uh, but for men. (laughs) But when it comes to um, just individual liberty and freedom and constitution, we have a lot less of that now uh, because of the influence of women in elections uh, than would have been the case you know, had women voted more uh, like men. Another thing that Donald Trump did not mention at all, of course, were the record trade deficits under his administration. Of course, didn't talk about the budget deficits for the national debt. He talked about trade, but not from the perspective that we're losing the trade war because of the record deficits. In fact, we actually got uh, a trade deficit that came out this morning for the month of November that was actually quite a bit smaller than had been forecast. It was a, supposed to be 54 billion last month. Was uh, upwardly revised uh, to 55.7 billion, and it dropped to 49.3 billion in November. Now, why did that happen? I think the main reason for the big drop in the trade deficit is that I think importers were trying to front-run a lot of the uh, the tariffs that were going to kick in, and so they wanted to hurry up and order some stuff and get it in before the tariffs. And so that led to a pickup in in imports and also a build in inventories. And one of the main reasons that the GDP numbers have been higher has been because of the inventory build. That's been the biggest contributor uh, to the higher GDP numbers. Well, if now we're starting to see a big decline in imports, it's probably because that inventory build is done and we finished front loading uh, those those imports and those uh, and those uh, inventories. So this should bode ill for future GDP because now that you know companies are not going to be building inventory as much in fact inventory may in fact even be drawing down. I think there was a huge collapse in imports, which was the real reason for the decline in the trade deficit. It's not that we have surging exports because our economy is booming, it's just that we had a big drop in in imports and part of that of course could be because the the bubble is deflating and part of that is as well, Americans can't afford to buy as much, and so if we can't buy as much, we're not importing as much because most of the stuff that we buy We do import, you know, I could give you another just piece of anecdotal evidence about why, uh, you know, how the U.S. economy is in such bad shape uh, and that the Bernie Sanders take on the state of the union is far more accurate than Donald Trump's is I finally got somebody to buy my house in, in Boca Raton. And, you know, this thing was on the market for many, many months and finally got, this is the second offer. I mean, the first offer that I turned down was crazy low. Uh, And then I finally got somebody to make a reasonable offer. And so we were able to negotiate the sale of the condo in Boca. But, you know, the market is very, very soft. I sold the condo for about 15% less than I paid for it nine years ago. But, of course, during those nine years, I spent a lot of money making the house uh, it's not a condo, a house, much nicer. So the house that I sold is far nicer than the one that I bought. Um, you know, I redid uh, the floors, the kitchens, bathroom, the pool area, patio, painted it, uh, the doors. I mean, it's it's a lot nicer. And I spent, you know, quite a bit of money relative to the value of the house. 100% of that was lost, right? I didn't recover one nickel of what I spent improving the property because I sold the property for less than I paid for it. And of course, it was very expensive to keep it uh, over the years. Uh, But, you know, let's say all in, if you take what I paid for the property and what I spent on improving it and what I got, when I sold it, and then you knock off the the Realtors' commissions, probably lost 40% uh, on the property over nine years. So clearly, again, everybody that thinks, oh, housing is such a great investment, all you have to do is buy a house clearly that's not the case and i bought this house in late 2009 so it wasn't the bottom of the busting of the bubble but it wasn't clear it wasn't anywhere near the top right the market had already lost quite a bit of value before i bought it just lost a little bit of you know it kept losing value after but this particular house is in a country club right and so when i'm talking to the realtor about why I should accept this this offer and why, you know, I have and I actually cut my price a couple of times. But she's trying to describe to me the market. Of course, obviously, she wants me to say yes, because she gets a commission if if there's a if there's a sale. But she's trying to say, look, you know, people don't want to live in country clubs anymore. It's very different than it was back when you bought. You know, people like country clubs and by country club, the house is on a golf course. So it's very pretty because the view is of a golf course. And in fact, we're right back next to a water hole. So it's almost like being in front of a lake. It's very pretty sitting by the pool or even from the living room. You look out and you see the pool and behind the pool, you see the golf course and the big water. And, you know, there's wild birds fly in there. It's pretty, you know, and she's saying people don't want to live in those country clubs anymore which doesn't make sense because country club living, especially for people who are retired, it's very easy. If you play golf, the golf course is right there. And, you know, there's a big, um, um, you know, clubhouse with restaurants and it's very easy to go down there and get food, whatever you want, because it's very close and they have all the tennis courts and the pickleball courts. Um, it's a nice community. Right. And to say that people don't want to live there doesn't make any sense. I mean, why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want all those amenities? So it's not about people not wanting to live in country clubs. They can't afford it. That's the problem. They can't afford the dues. They can't afford the maintenance. I mean, every year I own that place, the, the, the cost went up because it's so expensive to take care of the golf course, the, the cost of maintaining it. And you have a big staff. You have all the people that work there. They all have to be paid. Right. Wages, health care benefits, all the, you know, the the, the people that work at the, 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 you know, the waiters and the chefs and just all the people that work, you know, at the golf course and at the tennis shop and all that stuff. These are people that have to be paid. And of course, electricity is going up. Insurance costs are going up. So every year it gets more and more expensive for people to live in a country club and they don't have the money because Inflation is eroding away the value of their savings, even though maybe they had some money in the stock market, they're getting nothing in the way of interest or dividends because rates have been so low. So it's not that people don't want to live on a golf course. They can't afford to live on a golf course. So the houses that are selling are are houses that are no longer part of these big country clubs because they don't have all the overhead that Americans can no longer afford. And, you know, when Donald Trump was talking about how this is a booming economy, how it's never been better, how the middle class has never been stronger, that is a bunch of nonsense. You can see now the huge decline in the standard of living just in the nine years since I bought that house, people can't afford to live in these communities anymore. So the real estate prices are plunging because obviously the only way now that people would be willing to buy homes on a golf course is if they can get them super cheap. They have to get them cheap enough so that they can afford both the house and the payments that they have to pay. And of course, they have this mandatory... Uh, You have to join the country club, and it's very expensive. Oh, and that's another loss that I had. When I first uh, got in, I was able to buy my membership from the guy who sold me the house. So he was able to not only sell me his house, but his golf membership. And I don't know, a year or two, they changed that. And now when you sell your house, you get nothing. The new buyer has to buy the membership all over again. So they just strip that value away from you. Uh, so that they, the, the the club can get more and more revenue. Because obviously the club wasn't getting the revenue if the homeowner was able to sell his membership to the new buyer. So they transferred the value from the homeowner to the club. But that's just a way for the club to try to keep up with the rising cost of maintaining uh, you know the, the grounds and the golf course and all the things that are involved in keeping these clubs going. So that is just an example of the declining standard of living. And it's going to get a lot worse. In fact – You know, it's a good thing I got out of this house now. I mean, I think the prices are going to keep on falling until they've one day maybe shut down the golf courses or maybe they can make them public and let more people come in so they can try to get some extra revenue. But otherwise, they might have to start shutting this down and maybe they could build more houses where the golf courses used to be. I don't know. But people want um, or they don't want uh, lower-cost housing. They need it. They can no longer afford the amenities that they could afford in the past when we had a higher standard of living because the economy continues to weaken under Trump and the only reason it hasn't imploded is because we've been able to go deeper into debt we've taken on more and more debt we've been able to kick the can down the road the state of the union is a disaster yet listen to Trump talk about it you think that you know this is the you know the roaring 20s which of course didn't end very well but it, this isn't even a boom Bernie Sanders and people like him are going to pick up a lot of votes based on the Republicans trying to sell a bunch of nonsense to the voters when the voters are living in the real economy and they know it's not a miracle. And, you know, it's not just, you know, the average voter too that's going to figure this out. Look, look, look at the, the investors. Look how clueless these investors are right now trying to get the public to believe the economy is good. I was watching this conversation on CNBC between Steve Leisman, their uh, senior economist, and, and Mohamed el uh, you know, big, big uh, investment guy, big bond guy. And they're all talking about what the Fed should do with interest rates and why they shouldn't uh, increase them. And they're talking about how great the economy is and that the Fed should just let it rip. Like, hey, you know, we're, there's, inflation isn't a danger. They don't have to slam on the brakes. Just let the economy rip. Everything is great. There's no, nothing is ripping. The economy isn't a car. It, you, you don't step on the gas and step on the brakes. It's not about, you know, the, you know the thinking that a strong economy is going to create inflation. There is no economic boom. There was just a bubble. Yet none of these big investors can get this bubble. They're caught in the same nonsense as Donald Trump. Because their perspective is so small. They're just looking at the economy from their own vantage point of you know benefiting from the bubble. Right? They've been managing assets in a bubble. And so their management fees have gone up. They've made more money. And maybe they want to believe that this is a good economy. But the vast majority of people who are living in this economy and who are going to vote in the next election, what's going to resonate with them is what guys like Bernie Sanders are saying and not what guys like Donald Trump or you know or people on CNBC are saying. In fact, there was an op-ed that was in the New York Times a couple of days ago written by Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer basically calling for a bill or I guess some legislation that they are going to introduce that is aimed at making it more difficult for corporations to buy back their own stock. And, of course, I haven't been a big fan of buybacks, but the reason that corporations are buying back so much stock is, A, because the Fed has kept interest rates artificially low, which I was opposed to, and it's also the tax code because this tax code favors capital gains over dividends. Now, not as much as it used to because the capital gains tax rate is now the same as the dividend rate. So the 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 the, uh, the advantage of the buyback is not as good as it once was. But, of course, you know – A lot of people still prefer capital gains over dividend income because capital gains, you could reduce that by capital losses. So if you lose money on one investment, you can use that to reduce your capital gains tax. You can't reduce the tax on dividends. So any income that you get in dividends, even if you have a capital loss, you can't offset it. But if you get a capital gain from a stock buyback and then you have a loss someplace else, you can offset it. So there is still a built in advantage for people to get their income through capital gains, uh, than through, through dividends. And so the reason that we have so many buybacks is because of government policy, whether it's tax policy or monetary policy. So if you don't like the buybacks, go after that policy. That's encouraging it. Don't try to say that corporations can't buy back stock because I mean, that's not constitutional. That's not legal. That's not what the government is supposed to do. But, of course, you know, that's what they want to do. And so what their bill is going to propose is that in order for a corporation to buy back shares or before it can do that, it needs to check off a bunch of boxes because the government wants to make sure that before it rewards shareholders, it rewards employees and it rewards stakeholders. It wants the workers and the communities uh, to be taken care of first, right? But like, like the owners are at the bottom of the totem pole. And the article, the op-ed, uh, they wrote about a $15 minimum wage. They want to make sure that companies pay at least $15 an hour to every worker, that they provide every worker with at least seven days of paid sick leave, that they offer decent pensions, whatever that is, more reliable health benefits, whatever they are. Anyway, whatever these guys want to cock, you know, come up with and concoct, they want to require corporations to do that before they can buy back stock. And then the article says, well, you know, they may try to avoid this by just paying dividends. So they want to apply the same limitation to dividends, which is even worse. Basically what they want to say is the owners of the companies can't share in the profits, can't get any profits from the business until an adequate amount of money is first distributed to the workers and to the community above and beyond the Um, the salaries that the workers have agreed to and the taxes that the communities are already imposing, there's got to be some additional money flowing to those stakeholders and workers before the owners can see the first dollar, which, again, this is not only just socialism. This is fascism, which is a form of socialism. But you basically have the government taking over the means of production through taxation and regulation. Because if the government is going to say the stockholders... Uh, Their claim on income is junior to the workers and the stakeholders. What does that mean? I mean, who owns the company? The government, right? The companies are going to be run for the benefit of the employees and society and not for the benefit of the owners that, oh, sure, if there's any money left over after these other groups get whatever we believe they're entitled to, well, then, you know, the owners can get the scraps. This is the political risk that I've been talking about when it comes to investing in any U S publicly traded company. This is like nationalization. This is like the company is being nationalized. The real owners are getting screwed and they're looting the companies and trying to give them the the, the money uh, to employees or other members of the community, basically in exchange for their votes. This is all about democracy in action, which ultimately becomes mobocracy, which becomes socialism, fascism. This is where we're headed. And again, The fact that Donald Trump is championing uh, this bubble economy and advocating for even more government and pretending like there's nothing wrong when this blows up, this type of stuff is going to gain a lot of traction, just like that populist movement that gave us the income tax. And the Federal Reserve was thrown in there, right? I I think I mentioned that the Federal Reserve came in, in 1913, during those seven years where we're getting all these constitutional amendments. We also got the the, the, uh, the Federal Reserve, but... So the populism gave us the income tax, the Federal Reserve, direct election of senators, prohibition, women's suffrage. right We had that huge movement. This next movement isn't just going to be a populist movement, it's a socialist movement, and we're going to get stuff like was outlined in this op-ed by Sanders and Chuck Schumer. And before I forget, too, I want to throw in a bit of a commercial. I am leaving tomorrow uh, for the Orlando Money Show. So I'm going to be there uh, for Friday and Saturday. If you're in the Orlando area, make sure and come by. I got a couple of new reps uh, that joined my office in Boca Raton. Uh, they're going to be up working the booth. If you're going to just go for one day, go for Friday because I'm on a panel at 8 a.m. and my workshop's at 5 p.m. So it's a long day. It's free, but you just have to go to the Money Show website. And, uh, and sign up, and then you can pick up your free badge when you're there. I mentioned before March 14th through the 24th, the Summit at Sea for my birthday. I'm going to turn 56 on March 23rd. If you want to celebrate with me, you should uh, go to shiftbirthday.com. And register to join us, uh, the Real Estate Guys Summit at Sea. I mentioned on another podcast, I mean, how much I look forward to this event every year. Not just because I I really enjoy the Real Estate Guys and they do a great job of putting on uh, this conference and this event. Uh, but because of the people that come, the summiteers, a lot of the people who are there are alumni. They've come many, many times, over and over again. And so whenever I'm there, it's almost like a family reunion. I come back. There's a lot of people I haven't seen in a year. Uh, again, I always have my wife, my kids with me, so we really have a good time. Especially if you're a real estate investor, uh, that is definitely something that you you know you want to check it out. But even if you're not into real estate, there's stuff to learn on the cruise, and you'll have a great time. But go to um, shiftbirthday.com. Also. Um, Valentine's day coming up, uh, February 14th, a perfect time to buy your wife or your girlfriend, some Manet jewelry. And of course, even if you're a gal, you can, they have some, uh, stuff that you can buy for men. There's some, you know, bracelets that men wear or cufflinks. I mean, it's a great Valentine's day gift, Manet jewelry. Look, it's not the best way to buy gold, right? Because, you know, you are going to pay maybe a 20% markup. Although you could get some stuff for less markup when you're on the website, you can actually see exactly how much gold you're getting and what the markup is for the design fee. So obviously, if you just want to buy a bunch of gold, then buying Monet jewelry is not the way to do it. Just go to Shift Gold and buy some some coins or some bars. But it is by far the best way to buy jewelry. Because if you spend $1,000 and get $800 worth of gold, that's a lot better than spending $1,000 and getting $100 worth of gold or $200 worth of gold, which is what would be the case uh, if you bought normal jewelry. Uh, So Mene.com is the way to go. They can ship stuff out in a couple of days. So I think if you get on there now, you can order yourself uh, uh, um, something and it'll still arrive in plenty of time. To give uh, a, a Valentine's Day gift, and of course, if it's your wife, it's not only a gift for your wife; it's a gift for yourself because it's not all—you know—the money isn't gone, right? Eighty percent of what you spent, you still have, even though your wife is wearing some lovely jewelry. If you know you got gold, and if you know if times really get bad, you can sell that gold, right? And even if times are good, if the price of gold really goes up, you know, if she gets tired of wearing well the jewelry, you can sell it and make a profit. So you you can never do that with normal jewelry, but you can do it. Uh, with Minet. Anyway, I want to finish up the podcast, talk a little bit more about politics. First of all, I need to go back and correct a mistake that I made when I was talking about the alleged racially motivated assault of the actor Jesse Smollett, uh, the uh, black gay actor on Empire, who claimed he was assaulted in Chicago at about two two thirty in the morning. And when I initially talked about it. I pointed out one of the reasons that I thought the story was so implausible was that I read that he was staying at a hotel and the hotel that he was staying at, I read that they had seven day a week, 24 hour room service. And so it didn't make any sense to me that at 20 degrees below at two in the morning, a few days after receiving a threatening letter, supposedly in the mail, that you would go out in that type of weather when all you had to do is pick up the phone and order room service. Well, apparently the article that I read that uh, claimed he was staying at the hotel was wrong. He wasn't staying at the hotel. The hotel was next door to the high-rise condominium. Where he was staying. And in fact, he went into the hotel uh, at some point after the alleged attack occurred, but he was not a registered guest. So, therefore, he could not have just picked up the phone and ordered room service. So, I was wrong about that. And so, that is not a reason to uh, not believe him. Although I still think that his story is completely uh, incredulous. I mean, yes, uh, the fact that he wasn't at a hotel makes it slightly less implausible that it actually happened. But now that I actually know even more evidence about it, I mean, first of all, I thought that he was bruised for some reason or there was something about maybe he had a, a, a cracked rib, which he didn't have. Apparently, the only uh, physical evidence that anything happened to him was a scratch under one eye. A scratch. Now, I mean, I don't know how you would have gotten that scratch in a fight. I mean, I can't even imagine who he got in a fight with. I mean, if two big guys, you know, uh, assaulted him, uh, he would have more than a scratch like a fingernail scratch or something under under one eye, so it really didn't look like he was the victim of much of anything uh, with respect to that that scratch. But also, when I first heard the story, I thought it was the, it was supposed to be the people that sent that letter. He gets this anonymous threatening letter, and then maybe the person who wrote that letter was somehow waiting outside in 20 degree weather, uh, you know, so they could see him and then throw the noose around his neck and, 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 and pour uh, bleach all over him or whatever the liquid was that they poured, uh, but probably bleach, right, because they were trying to make him white, like turn him into somebody who was white. Uh, and they had a noose because after all, right, we like to string up black people. So they were waiting for him with all this stuff. But apparently, according to the way uh, Smollett has described the encounter, that that wasn't the case, that these guys just happened to run into him and, and recognize him. That they saw him coming out of the uh, the subway restaurant, and they said, "Oh, aren't you Jesse Smollett? You know that uh, African American homosexual." Of course, not using those words, using racially charged words, but basically, "Hey, aren't you that guy?" Now, first of all, if these guys really are a bunch of white racists, what's the chances that they actually watch Empire, a show basically about blacks, a black family with a black cast? I mean, if you dislike black people so much... Why would you even watch that show? And, of course, you have to really watch it to know who the actors are, to know their names and to know their characters, right? So these are big fans somehow of Empire, yet they're, they're a bunch of racists. And, and I don't know what Smollett was wearing because it was 20 degrees below. I mean, I'm sure he had some kind of hat on. Maybe he was even bundled up. So I mean, how do you even recognize somebody at night uh, And you know, when they're probably bundled up because it's cold weather? But somehow they recognized him. Right? He just happened to be walking around at 2.30, 2 in the morning, 20-degree weather. And the two people that he happened to run into just happened to be fans of his show. And they also happened to be a bunch of white homophobic racists who were fans of, of Empire. And, and just so it happens, these two guys randomly walking on the street, well, they just happen to have a noose. Right. They didn't just have a rope. They had a noose. They had already made the noose and they had the bleach, which I guess they carry around with them all the time just in case they run into a famous homosexual black actor because they want to make sure that in case they run into somebody like that, that they've got the noose ready to go. They can throw it right around his neck and douse it with the bleach. And by the way, I don't know how long they were walking around with that bleach, but it was 20 degrees below zero why didn't the bleach freeze? right? I mean, it should have been a block of ice. Uh, they shouldn't have been able to pour anything on it because it should have just been ice in whatever the container that they had. So again, the idea that these guys happen to be walking around with a noose at 2.30 in the morning at minus 20 degree weather, I mean, that also is crazy. And then I read the guy claims Smolet claims he fought back. He wasn't just an innocent guy. He actually bravely fought back. He fought against these two guys, which would mean if he got into a fight with them, if he just didn't let them, you know, throw the noose on his neck and hit him a couple times, whatever. If he actually fought back, he would have even more bruises. He would have maybe some bruises on his hands. Where's the DNA evidence under his fingernails? And meanwhile, not only did he fight back, he was on the phone the entire time. So he didn't even drop his phone. What, he fought back with one hand, and he got a phone in the other hand? Oh, wait a minute. He had a sandwich. He had a sandwich in one hand and a salad and a phone, yet somehow with his hands full of stuff, he still managed to fight back, and all he got was one little scratch below his his eye. So again, this, this story gets even more incredulous as you as you you know peel the onion and again as i said nobody is criticizing him with the exception if you go on youtube pretty much you will find a lot of videos made by other black guys right that are pretty much saying, BS, I don't believe yet. This is no way this happened, right? There's some black guys that can come out and say it. But there's very few white people that can come out and say it because they're afraid of being called racist. And I still keep reading all the articles about the assault, the vicious attack. It wasn't even a vicious attack. He's got a tiny little scratch underneath his eye. So even if he was attacked, it wasn't that bad. In fact, everybody is making a big deal. Chicago is almost the murder capital of the country. You know how many blacks are murdered in Chicago every week or every day or brutally assaulted? I mean, Smollett barely got scratched, right? We're making a big deal about this. Like, this is the biggest crime. There were 12 detectives that were assigned to this case where a guy gets a little scratch. What about people who got murdered? Don't they get any justice? I mean, we're making a big deal about the fact that maybe there's a couple of white racists that scratched a black celebrity and put a noose around his neck. What about all the other black criminals, thugs, murderers who are brutally killing other black people? See, no one cares about that. If a black person murders a black person, oh, no big deal. That happens every day. But hey, if a a white racist throws a noose around someone's neck and, and, and puts a little scratch, you know? Oh no. I mean, if it actually happened, yes. I mean, should people go around throwing nooses on other people's necks? No, but the guy was barely touched. He has, there are no damages, which is, you know, again, it makes it more likely that the whole thing was made up, you know, because he obviously he didn't want to beat himself up too badly. Uh, so maybe a little scratch and I don't know whether he got to scratch anyway, because he, he something happened to him and then he just had the scratch. But it seems to me that if the whole thing was just made up from the letter to the assault, I bet that he you know, was self-inflicted. He probably took something and scratched it under his eye and that was it. Anyway, one final two thing I wanted to talk about, another political, uh, I guess, racially charged issue has to do with Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. And this guy recently was elected governor. He's a Democrat. And if you haven't heard the controversy, somebody dug up an old picture of his medical school yearbook, I think about 1983. And in his the page, the same page where he's pictured, there is another photograph of two individuals, one dressed as a Ku Klux Klansman, you know, you know in a white, uh, you know, uh, sheet type thing with a hood. And then there's a, a, a guy, a black guy. And it looks to be like it's a white person in, in blackface uh is what it looks like. And so there's a photograph of them. And you can't really tell obviously who they are, because one guy's got a hood and one guy is covered in you know black makeup. So you really don't know who they are. And the question is, is one of these two people, uh Virginia, uh a uh, governor Ralph Northam? Now I think initially he may have implied that maybe it was him or then he denied it was him or how did that picture get there? Or did he take the picture? Did he know about the picture? Right? And everybody is saying, or theres a, I don't think everybody is saying, but everybody in the media right, is saying that, oh, this guy's got to resign because you know, he has this uh, racist picture in his, in his college yearbook. And I say, no, this is irrelevant. Right? And I think all the Republicans that are calling for him to resign, if they are, based on this photograph, are hypocrites if they defended Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearings because of, you know, there were references to whatever was going on in his yearbook, right? They were trying to use a high school yearbook against Kavanaugh, and now you're going back, and yes, this is a college yearbook or it's a graduate school yearbook, and so the governor was a little bit older, maybe Kavanaugh was 16 or 17, and the governor might've been 23, 24, but as far as I'm concerned, it's irrelevant, this picture. Now, because we don't know what the context is, uh, this picture was taken. I mean, I don't know if the governor was in it or not. Now, if he was in that picture, if he was one of those two people, I think he would remember. So, I mean, if he's lying about it, if he's if he doesn't want to admit the truth, I mean, that is a problem. Right. I think he should you know, say, hey, yeah, that was me. Right. Yeah. I guess looking back at that, that really was inappropriate. Right. I mean, maybe it was a Halloween costume. Maybe maybe he and his buddy decided to go as a Halloween costume. Hey, let's go as a Klansman and a black guy. Maybe that's what they did. I mean, because I don't know. I mean, Halloween costumes, a lot of times are inappropriate. A lot of times they're offensive. At least they were when I was younger. I mean, you would try to push the envelope with a Halloween costume. You know, adults are dressing up. It wasn't always just about trying to be scary. It was trying to do something that was out there. Right. I mean, that's what a lot of people did. When they, when they dressed up for Halloween. Now, would this have been appropriate? Would this have been maybe over the line? I mean, I don't know. It depends on how other people who might have been at the party reacted to these costumes. I mean, clearly, whoever put it in the yearbook Didn't think it was that big of a deal. I mean, he was not the editor of that yearbook. I mean, he claims he didn't even see the yearbook, which maybe he didn't. I mean, I've never seen my college yearbook. I don't even know if it exists. I mean, I I had a copy of my high school yearbook, but I didn't have any role in, in putting it together. I mean, I don't know how much role... Uh, he had and even selecting the pictures or what pictures went on his page. But somebody had to edit that yearbook. I mean, if he if he submitted a picture of himself naked, I don't think they would have put it in the yearbook. So somebody has to look over the pictures and they have to approve it. And the picture has been there. I mean, I'm sure people looked at the yearbook. What happened back then? I mean, were people offended? Were people outraged? I mean, were there any black students in this medical school? I'm sure there were. I mean, what were they? How did they feel about it? At the time, I mean, I doubt it was that big a deal. I mean, times have changed. I mean, yes, the Klan, I mean, nobody looked favorably on the KKK, but they didn't have all this, you know, animosity about blackface. I mean, I didn't hear about somehow blacks, you know, uh, being so offended by a white person in black makeup. This is new. I mean, I I didn't hear about this stuff in the early 80s. Now, apparently, now this guy actually said, well, that wasn't me. I didn't put on blackface for this photo, but I just so happened to have done it. Right. I did a I did a uh, Michael Jackson Impersonation. I was in a dance contest and I was doing the moonwalk and I was I was dressing up as Michael Jackson and so you know I put a little black shoe polish on my face so I could look more like Michael Jackson, which of course you know shows you how much times change because if he was impersonating Michael Jackson 20 years later, he wouldn't have needed any black face. I mean Michael Jackson when he died he was probably whiter than I am. I mean, probably if a black guy wanted to impersonate Michael Jackson, He would have to put white shoe polish on his face to look more like Michael Jackson. But somehow he had put some uh, black makeup on his face at that time and he could do the moonwalk. But he wasn't the guy in this particular photograph. But if it was him, who cares? Right. I mean, if it was a photograph of a guy dressed like Adolf Hitler or some other Nazi and standing next to him was a Jew uh, dressed in concentration camp garb, you know, with a, with a star of David yellow on his, you know, on his chest, you know, would I be making a big deal about it? Oh, you're, you're anti-Semitic. You should step down because there's a picture of, you know, you with Adolf Hitler and you No, I wouldn't care. You know, now I don't think anybody today, Would would have a Halloween costume like that. I mean, you'd be a complete fool if you're going to go as a Ku Klux Klan guy and a black guy today with with the intolerance that we have today on the left for that kind of humor. Right. Back then in the early 80s, it was okay. People were more tolerant of of that. I mean, people could laugh at that. People could think that was funny. Now, some people might have been offended. But again, that was part of the idea sometimes behind these costumes. Let's offend people. Let's be offensive. I mean, you had a right to be offensive back then. Right now, apparently you don't, right? Everybody has to make sure that they don't do anything that could possibly offend anybody else. So that's just more individual liberty that we've lost. But just because something was done 35 years ago that was okay back then, maybe a little inappropriate. But certainly okay doesn't mean you use today's standards and condemn the individual and say, well, you're a racist. you got to step down. What proof do they have that he is a racist other than this 35 year old photograph where he may or may not have been uh, one of the people? What difference does it make? I mean, if he has a history of racism, that should be out there. Right. There should be evidence of it, not just this photograph that surfaces. Now, of course, a lot of people think, ah, this is great. Right. Let the Democrats stew in their own brew. Right. They made this bed. Let them lie in it. Right. You know, I don't believe that. I've never believed that two wrongs make a right. I want to be consistent. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And just the way I defended Kavanaugh, I'm going to defend uh, Northam. Now, I don't like his politics. Right? And, you know, maybe it'd be good, better if he did resign for politicals because he's, you know, he's a Democrat. Hey, let's have a Republican governor instead of this guy. But he should not resign because of this photograph in his yearbook. And nobody should call for his resignation because of this photograph. But, of course, if the Democrats don't, then they look like hypocrites. If they're willing to condemn, um Kavanaugh for his high school yearbook, how are they going to give this guy a pass for his medical school yearbook? But, again, things change. Right. But what is what is acceptable at one point in time may not be acceptable uh, in the future. I mean, take the movie Blazing Saddles. Right. I don't know how many people who listen to my podcast have seen Blazing Saddles. It's a very, very funny movie. Mel Brooks movie from the 1970s. Right. You could not make that movie today. I don't even think you can show that movie today. I think if a theater tried to screen Blazing Saddles, all there'd be is protesters out there. This is terrible, uh, the way it depicts blacks. But you know what? It actually doesn't. You know, if you actually watch the movie, right, for all the use of the N-word and all that stuff, the fools are the white guys. It's the townspeople of Rock Ridge. They're a bunch of idiots. The smartest character in that movie is uh, the sheriff, the black sheriff played by Clavon Little. I mean, he's the smart guy. He makes all the white guys look like a bunch of idiots. But yes, there's a lot of offensive language in there, and there's a lot of stuff that would be deemed too politically uh, incorrect uh, to to be aired today. So, but the movie was made. It wasn't bad. I'm sure there were black people in the theater who were laughing at uh, at this movie and were not offended by it. But today, all of a sudden, it's offensive. So you can't judge things that happen. 30, 40 years ago, right? And say, oh, today it's wrong. Today it's inappropriate and racist. And we're going to apply the standards that exist today to the standards uh, that existed at the time. And again, just being willing just to throw this guy under the bus just because his picture is near this other picture. And you have no idea how those two pictures came to be in proximity to one another, whether or not he had any role in selecting the picture or putting the yearbook together. So you don't even know. But even if he did, even if he said, hi, look, this was a really great memory. I had a great time at this Halloween party. This was a blast. You know, everybody thought it was funny. We won best costume. Who the hell knows? Yeah. Put it in the yearbook. Even if that's what happened. So what? So what? But again, all we have now today is form over substance. This political correctness, everybody has to conform. And what you do to show how tolerant you are is by having absolutely no tolerance whatsoever for anything that can be remotely related to being racist or homophobic. And so the irony of it is in order to prove that you are tolerant, you are completely intolerant. (laughs)